Right, over, that's a very important event. Over to Clive and to the poets. Good. <clears throat> okay, it's totally false to say I've never been paid to do a case. I once got paid two six-packs of beer to represent one of my colleagues who I got off a traffic ticket. Um, I was going to talk about something totally different, but, um, but then I was just going out to lunch with, uh, with one of the folk who organized this, and he's now told me to talk about something utterly different, so that's what I'll do. Uh, I should say first that the doors are now locked. You can't leave until you swear in blood that you're going to help Reprieve, which is the charity I founded, and Claire's at the back, um, where you can steal one of the books I wrote about Guantanamo. I wouldn't suggest you pay for it. Um, but also sign up, I hope, because the point I find of coming to these things is, A, to learn where the hell Ledbury is. I have no idea yet. And second, um, to exploit all of you. And I'm incredibly proud to get to exploit these poets behind you. And I'm just going to tell you some of the, some of the relevance of it, uh, and because one of the illustrations I want to make is how everyone has talent that can help the people that my mother told me I had to help who are the hated people out there around the world. So I was going to talk about something else, but I'm told I must tell you a couple of stories about poetry and the death penalty. One is this. We were talking about um, poetry. I do have some pathetic ambitions to write 151 sonnets, obviously because Shakespeare wrote 150, which is unbelievably vain. I realize that, and I'm, I'm a long way from that. Um, but I used to learn poetry when I was sitting outside death row waiting to see my clients. Um, and so then when, when the guys on death row would get in trouble, I had this idea which was just so cool. That there was a guy called Roosevelt Green who was from Brooklyn, just in New York, who was getting in terrible trouble. He was black and the guards were all white in Georgia and they hated him because he would you know, get all talky uh, at them and uh, everyone would get angry. So instead, I just had him learn passages from Shakespeare, right? And so he would, uh, he, he would start quoting from Henry V every time he got angry at these guards. And it was fantastic. He never got another write-up. The guards would just stare at him, have no idea what he was doing. Uh, but he was, I was very fond of Roosevelt, uh, which, which leads on to uh, another story I was told I had to tell you. Uh, which does have a serious point somewhere in the middle of it, but it was the first death penalty trial I ever did. I was straight out of law school at Columbia up in New York. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and I was, this is typical of American death penalty cases because capital punishment is when those without the capital get the punishment. So they get stuck with some lawyer who knows nothing. Um, and in this case, it was me. And I was representing a guy called John Pope in Georgia when I was less than a year out of law school. Um, and I did, in closing argument with this guy's life on the line, um, I did what any pompous English public schoolboy would do. I started quoting Shakespeare at them. You know, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath, and so on and so forth. And there were these 12 Georgia jurors who were just staring at me like, uh, like um, um, you know, a bump on a log and clearly have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, one of them did talk to me later and said, I love your accent. I didn't understand a word you said from beginning to end of trial, but I could listen to you all day. Anyway, they have no idea about this Shakespeare guy. And this old, juror, this old lawyer at the back of the courtroom, a guy called Bobby Lee Cook, comes up to me at the end and he says, Clive, that's a mighty fine piece of poetry, um, but these here jurors have never heard of Shakespeare. 
Um, I've used that same quote myself just last week in a capital trial, and I began it by saying, I think it was in the book of Job I read. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, that's the, that's the language that the jurors speak, so they then listen, because this is God talking, not this guy Shakespeare. <laughs> And Bobby Lee said he won his case um, because the jurors thought, this is great stuff that God gave us. And so the prosecutor called him up that night, three sheets of the wind, said, Bobby Lee, I've read the book of Job three times and it's not in there. And, you know, that actually taught me a lot. Um, you know, it, it didn't teach me the bit about lying to people about what you're doing. I don't think that's terribly clever when you're doing trials. But you have to speak the language of jurors. And if you speak Shakespeare, you just don't get anywhere. And you know the, the bottom line thing, which was incredibly useful, was I always love, you know, you get to voir dire jurors, what's your favorite Bible verse? I don't have a favorite See, Bible he verse. could never live in his little community again in America after <laughs> saying that. He's, he's just been ostracized from the whole county. Um, you know, you do that, you get to ask the jurors, and they come up with Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, and the case is over. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Because then your closing argument to the jury is this, hey, you know, I'm asking you to show mercy, which means you go to heaven. If you do what the prosecutor over there says, you go to hell. This is your choice. And it's just really simple when you know the language that people are speaking. And that's a rule that applies to everybody in every walk of life. I should probably sit down and shut up before I alienate Ledbury by making uh, rude comments about where the hell we are again. But... Um, but so, so, you know, that was my sort of thing I was meant to say in introduction to why poetry is somehow relevant to Guantanamo and the death penalty. I'm going to speak a bit later about what Guantanamo, Guantanamo is all about, really. But I'd like to just, who's going to volunteer just for one question now? Just, I'm going to volunteer you because you're sitting in the front row, which is very unwise. There's no right answer to this. In fact, the more stupid your response, the better it is for what I want, Okay. So how many people are in Guantanamo Bay today? Good God, you're really rather close. You're wrong, but you're close. That's, where did you get that from? <laughs> wow. So he knows that Guantanamo is still open, which is more than 98% of Americans, right? And I am American. Um, one of the things we're talking about, there are actually 40, but it's still a tiny number. 95% of them we've got out so far, 95.5%. Um, but I want to talk about why it's so important that you, in conjunction with the folk here, uh, continue to show an interest for these people. We'll talk about that a bit later, but it's now my real privilege. I was actually, I'm not the chair, I'm the host. I love this stuff. I'm hosting something in a town I've never heard of. Um, <laughs> and it's really lovely, by the way. I've really enjoyed my 45 minutes here. The, uh, <laughs> And I wish I could stay. I, re I really do. It's, I really I re wish I could. It's been so, it really has been interesting. I'm not being cynical. Um, but it's my privilege not to introduce these guys because, as I told them, I got annoyed at my wife once and I called her by the, I mean, my sister, and I called her by my ex wife's name because I was so annoyed at her. So I was therefore never used people's names since because I'm liable to get the most basic things wrong. So they have to introduce themselves, and we get to hear the poetry, which is inspired to some degree by some of the materials that we've liberated from Guantanamo. I'll tell you more about that when these guys are through, but I'm really interested to hear them. So you go first, and you have to say who you are. Okay. There you go. Um, 
I'm disconcerted because I thought it was alphabetical. Isn't it? Oh, I thought, no, I thought it was. No, I'm the end of the alphabet, oh, but we'll go, we'll go the wrong way. <laughs> <It's> gonna, <laughs> let's do that because I have an S name, right? And we always get discriminated It's again. true. So we're gonna, it's true. You first. First. Okay, thank you. Um, so my name is Ruth Stacey, and um, I, I don't normally write about this subject, so it was quite harrowing to approach it and to delve into all of the information available to us and to read about the individuals in prison there that are represented by the charity. Um, and lots of, after reading and letting it settle, lots of images sort of remained. But one thing that stood out to me was um, a person called Haroon Gull. And he had talked, well, they had talked about how he dreamt of being a honey farmer and keeping beehives. And I thought this symbol of, of freedom and peace was very strong to me. So that was the starting point of this poem. And then I approached it as a fable. So, Guantanamo Fable. A nest was attacked and it toppled from a tree. The crows circled the tree and their feathers trembled. The reasons for the attack were clouded. It must be this or that, perhaps a cat. No, screeched the leader of the crows. It was a magpie. I know because of secret information written on leaves. Magpies are our enemy. They worship the white side of the bird, and we worship the black side. It doesn't matter that it's the same bird. Allay your fears, light-boned folk. Gird your pinions. Things in the past are shadows. What was is now not. History is a scab. If you pick at it, you will see that success comes at a bloody cost. So justice can only be implemented with injustice. Shush, don't speak of it. There are magpies that know things. There are traitorous magpies that will destroy us all. What happens far away is like a bedtime story. It can be dismissed with a good sleep. Flesh is just flesh. It must be transformed into a new shape. No, no, no medieval methods. Leave no marks. No trials for them. I heard, I think, I know they are dangerous. Do it according to Regulation 6.3. Scream at them all day and night. Put them in a box so they cannot see the moonlight. Keep them on an island far away from their soil. Let them try to remember flowers, beehives, poetry. Forget this story, my fellow birds. Trust me to guide your flight. Surely you want what is profitable and not what is right. Thank you. That history is a scab line is quite something. Um, that was Ruth Stacey, did you say? I did. Oh, you did. Um, I'm Jacqueline Safra. Um, <clears throat> this commission uh, caused me a lot of difficulty. I, first of all, I thought, why have they asked me to write about this? And what do I know? And what gives me the right? And then the poet part of me thought, 
this is a challenge. You, you know, you've honed some skills with words. You can find a way into this. Um, and uh, talking to the other poets, I've discovered, uh, as you're, I'm sure you'll hear, there are going to be lots of echoes of certain images and certain forms in this reading. But three of us have cho chosen to write um, from the Middle East and ancient Persian uh, form, uh, sometimes known in this country as a gazal, sometimes known as a guzzle, and sometimes known as a chuzzle, if you're thinking about um, the Arabic pronunciation. <laughs> Uh, so I chose to write a ghazal. Um, this is partly because it has these um, autonomous couplets in it, which means that I was able to write um, a couplet about all seven of the detainees being um, represented by reprieve, um, and partly, obviously, because most of them are from that part of the world. So it seemed to make a lot of sense. Um, the, it has a refrain in it, as most ghazals do, it's, um, which you'll hear as I go through it. Um, and the, the name Gitmo is the sort of um, short, shortened version of Guantanamo, um, and it's in the title. Oh, and also to say, how amazing is it that a campaigning organisation has actually harnessed poetry in this way? I mean, most of the time it's ignored in these situations, and it's really great that you've chosen to do this. So thank you very much. Thank you. Gitmo Huzzle. If our memories cloud like the broken blue skies of Guantanamo Bay, these names will remind us who lives and who dies at Guantanamo Bay. Abdul Malik Bajabu, never charged, never sentenced, father of three, who witnessed your crime? Only the closed eyes of Guantanamo Bay. Tofik Bihani, beaten, chained to a wall, Still your poems sing moonlight into the silence, language woven of cries from Guantanamo Bay. Ahmed Rabani, since you were bountied and bound to the feeding chair, you hold fast to your hunger, a power disguised at Guantanamo Bay. Harun Gul, you colour your gift of flowers as if their nectar might nourish the bees of your mind evading the spies of Guantanamo Bay. Saifullah Paracha, old stalwart of lock and key, heart sore, heart sick, you whom they call Chacha. What's your advice to Guantanamo Bay? Khalid Kasim, ah, wind in your dream of sails, you who paint freedom from gravel and glue, your souls on the rise from Guantanamo Bay. Abdul Nasir, dictionary maker. Alas, your book of parallels cannot translate detention to liberty, the only true prize at Guantanamo Bay. Here is my protest in ink, paper and shame. The names of the voiceless, untried, caged in the dungeon of infinite lies called Guantanamo Bay. Thank you. Um, I'm Vidyan um and I wrote this poem um, drawing on information from two accounts. Um, there's Mohamedou Salahi's 
account of Guantanamo Bay, and there's this great graphic novel by um, Jerome Tubiana called Guantanamo Kid, the true story of Mohammed El Gorani. And the poem's written in the form of Oscar Wilde's ballad, Reading Jail, although it's, it's not as long, so that's just I mean. Okay. Um, the Ballad of Guantanamo Bay. At Camp X-Ray, no roof, no walls gave shelter from the sun. In his bleak square of hot wire mesh, each paced till the day was done, while past each unprotecting cell, the guard strode with his gun. Among themselves, the prisoners debated where they were. Europe, Oman, the wild, wild west, a bureaucratic nightmare, a placeless hell, the anti-womb, a tactical despair. Shackled, searched, electrocuted, left lying on the floor for hours in your blood and piss, stained with gore, you tasted war, and refusal to confess to lies meant being sent back for more. The guards would cover with black tape the name tags on their gear so you could not report abuse to their superior, and where man's anonymous to man, the tyrant will appear. The tyrant who yells racial slurs in the slang of his nation, who strips you naked and whose knife threatens you with castration, who drinks and laughs and photographs your humiliation. Your head is slammed against a wall, then covered with a hood, so drips of water on that cloth imitate a drowning flood, and every breath arrives like death to kill your fortitude. When pressed, they granted your request for your holy book, but it was just a prop for them to drop wide-eyed in the shit bucket to injure like a voodoo doll should you kick up a racket. The air was filled with whoops and cries the day he was elected. A brown man must close Gitmo down. Justice was predicted. But once Obama talked his talk, his hope was rejected. The day you were released, you thought, can one like me go home? Your body and your contused mind will never be the same. Every night, those years of plight shape an amorphous dream. In place of torture, memory provides electric shocks. Come daybreak at your dawn raw door, the fist of terror knocks, and round a cell that is no cell, the faceless guard still stalks. The business you've begun shuts down. Corrupt authority will see you hurled from land to land, break up your family, bonds stretch and fray, and loneliness is all your legacy. The guilty and the innocent live paralyzed in time, where a diminished media just shifts from crime to crime, a spotlight with no power in it to damn or to affirm. Outrage abounds, but we're content to rage within our lane, to bumper sticker a Humvee and hammer on the horn, the grievance of a private self that doesn't know it's born. Our softer prison won't permit more than a passing thought, 
for those alive another way or dying of their fight, convenient foe or refugee, you suffer out of sight. Thank you. Hi, how are you doing? Excellent, good. I'm David, and this poem uh, is dedicated to the Guantanamo detainee Tofik Bihani. Uh, Tofik Bihani was been, uh, has been held in Guantanamo since early 2003, uh, despite having never been charged with a crime. In 2010, uh, Tofik was officially cleared for release by the Obama administration. Um, yes, he still remains detained. Uh, Tofik writes poetry in both English and Arabic. And one of Tofik's poems closes with the line, When I heard the calling of birds, I remembered your sweet voice when you sang the song, Remember Me This Way. I took the line as my starting point for a poem in the form of a gazelle. Now, there are three gazelles on stage this afternoon, and you should absolutely welcome them all. I once organised a poetry reading in Batley in West Yorkshire, the constituency of Joe Cox, in which I invited poets from Gujarat to read, 13 poets, and the Home Secretary tried his damnedest to stop them from coming, claiming there was black death in Gujarat. So I had to write on behalf of every one of the poets, and Everyone came to the reading. How many people came to that reading? 5,000 people. How long did the reading last? Ledbury. Five hours. Non-stop. Every poem was a gazelle. In this poem, all the birds which are invoked have Guantanamo Bay Naval Base as their home because, paradoxically, Guantanamo Naval Base is a wildlife haven. Gazal, when I heard the calling of birds for Tafik Bahani, I remembered your sweet voice when you sang Remember me this way. When you folded my heart in your wing to remember me this way. When emerald hummingbirds flashed through the chain link fence, I remembered that day. When a palm swift slipped from her nest in the dark of Camp Echo, I remembered and counted that day. When lazuli buntings burst in a blue cloud above my open sky cage, I remembered and blessed their day. When saffron finches dust bathed in the detention yard, I dreamt of home that day. When I heard the rapid fire of woodpeckers 
in the pines below Camp Echo, I remembered and trembled that day. When I saw scarlet Tanagas swoop across the Gulf of Guantanamo, I fled with them that day. When the Oriole bowed his orange cowl from the watchtower, I remembered and feared that day. When Stygian owls plied their sorrow flutes in reeds beyond the kill zone, I remembered and wept that day. When a mourning dove swayed on her roost of razor wire above Camp Echo, I buried my heart that day. I wake to macaws, squawking, tafik, the echo of guards bawling, bihani. My heart is folded in your wing. Remember me this way. Thank you. Hi there. Hi there. I like a couple of people over here saying hi. Uh, thank you. Um, okay, my name's Roy McFarlane. Um, it is a privilege to be involved in projects like this. I think as poets, when we get commissions, they're intriguing, different kind of commissions, kind of thing. But when you get something for me, for my heart, when you're looking at the injustice, um, it's something that I, I think as poets, we have got to get on board as artists and poets. And I'm loving what I'm hearing. I mean, that's what I've just been waiting to hear what, what everybody has brought to the table, and it's magical. Um, I wanted to look at one specific individual. Um, when I was reading through them, all these different names were coming through, and all their stories, all their different um, journeys grabbed a hold of me. But one individual by the name of Eunice Chikori really grabbed a hold of me, especially... Um, when he keeps talking about daddy, he's now, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, he's still in a place called Safi in Morocco. So when he left Guantanamo, they took him back to Morocco. And the funny thing is, he spent 14 years in Guantanamo. And this guy was a, a charity worker, if I'm not mistaken, working in Afghanistan and got caught up by bounty hunters that took a hold of him. He spent 14 years in Guantanamo, and then um, he's released to go back to Morocco. He spends 10 hours on a flight, hooded and chained and locked, and he supposedly is free. He's free. And it's quite interesting, having a conversation with Claire, and I think it was Kate, told me that this is one of those tricks that they do, that, that even though you're free, there, there's a determination to make you look like you are this extreme, murderous, mad killer. He's free, but they send him back home 
10 hours on a flight, hooded, chained up, to still have that, that, that demonization of that guy still following him. And when he gets to Morocco, he's locked up again, and they were going to lock him up for five years. And I guess you guys worked so hard that, that he got away uh, after five months. Um, I couldn't get all of that in the poem, but, but um, I hope you understand this man's journey. <clears throat> Yunus Shakori. Here in Safi, Morocco, the place to spill, to pour, Yunus floods the Atlantic with tears and memories. I'm still in Gitmo, he says, as he walks around an ancient cathedral and remembers pages ripped from his Quran, seeks sanctuary behind a fortress too small to protect him from soldiers still running into his dreams, brandishing and shooting guns, beating his genitals. Eunice continues along the beach called Head of the snake, filled with the poison of anxiety still lingering in his body, no, care, no cure to be found in pills and therapies. Here in Safi, Al Idrisi once called this place the place of regret. And he spoke of sailors who sailed to the other side of the Atlantic, only to be lost on some island. Eunice got lost in the lies, the bounty hunt, the tortures that shipwrecked him on the shores of Guantanamo. I'm still in Gitmo, he says, knowing of the ordeal of being seized and blindfolded. The sailors in the myth traveled back on ships. He flew back after 14 years hooded with earmuffs, arm shackled to his legs, supposedly free. You see, theirs was a story of legends returning to the place of regret. His is a lived story, a real story that lives on from day to day in every corner of his beaten body. Here in Safi, sleep deprivation still follows him. And Eunice at times grips his side or catches a faltering breath. He'll look across the horizon, hear the waves crash against the seawall, know the spray of a hundred drops, count the thousand stars at night, and stand an ocean away from a scar on humanity's memory. And yet, he'll feel I'm still in Gitmo. Hello Ledbury, I'm Jane Kermain. Um It's been, as um, many of the poets have said, a, a complete privilege to be asked to write this for um, Reprieve. And I would urge everybody um, after today to please take a look at Reprieve's website because I found that the information on the Reprieve website is an act of witness in many ways. It reminds us not only that Guantanamo is still there, it reminds us of the enormous suffering of the people um, 
currently and um, previously in Guantanamo. Um, and in writing my poem, I really wanted to um, uh, find out as much as I could about Guantanamo, and it was such an incredible resource for, for learning um, as much as for writing. Um, I have also written a ghazal, um, and my beginning had been for, for sort of several months turning over the idea of where I really wanted to start with this poem. And I had the image of an oubelette in my head. Um, an oubelette is a, a type of um, medieval prison. You often find them in castles. Warwick Castle has got a very famous, very small, very constricted oubelette in which the prisoner could only ever stand upright and never sit. Um, and it's... Um, it's it's sort of kept coming back to me as a, as a very strong image, not least because the word oubliette comes from the French oublier to forget, um, and it was literally meant in medieval times as a form of torture, as a place to leave people and forget about them. The other thing that struck me about the information that Reprieve give you about the detainees um, at Guantanamo is both the use of overstimulation and um, sensory deprivation as a form of torture, and particularly that whilst um, Obama called Guantanamo a sad chapter. Unfortunately, Donald Trump has promised to continue to fill Guantanamo with what he calls bad dudes. Um, unfortunately, I think that's a really sad reminder of where we are at the moment and why it's even more important we keep talking about Guantanamo, we keep it in the news. And I hope um, that in some way that these poems are part of that continuing conversation. My poem is called building the oubliette. With light, water, and constant white noise, you make an oubliette. With darkness, thirst, and confinement, you make an oubliette. Take a king's ransom. Take kidnapped and bewildered taxi drivers and refugees. Take extraordinary rendition and make an oubliette. Enforce immediate measures, indefinite detention. Stand on a soapbox raised on a torn up convention of human rights to make an oubliette. Find an island, a fortified breeze block complex at the end of a road. Declare anti-gravity, suspend law and reality to make an oubliette. Employ a short shackle and some truth-making techniques. Employ a device. Employ doctor, unfortunately, and a phalanx of guards to make an oubliette. Write a sad chapter. Write a blockbuster. Shout like a cartoon villain about bad dudes and dress the cast in orange to make an oubliette. Here, turn the key and drop the bolt and replace the names of Harun, Tafik, Ahmed, Zaifullah and Abdul with numbers to make an oubliette. Here, in the unblinking spotlight of insomnia and hunger, men may watch their days of their lives fall into the dust that makes an oubliette. Here, the dream poem of bees, busy in their sweet and singular honey-making, exists in a barely believed other life, 
parched in the shadow that makes an oubliette. The oubliette is the court and the jury and the prison cell. We put people here to forget about them. In silence, we look away. We make the oubliette complete. Uh, hi guys, uh, my name is Casey Bailey and this poem is called Frameless. It is for all of the people that have been granted their release but probably never have their freedom. Caged men cheered as my feet drummed the corridors. They think that I left that day. Think when their bodies travel home, heart beating in their chest, they will be free. I know different. There is a newspaper article in a frame at home. It's six years old. Speaks of my release, my freedom. Here in this room with no frames on the walls, I kneel in prayer knowing I can't be here. In this hollow ribcage of a room, I roar like my stomach during my last hunger strike. And like then, nobody can hear. Nobody listens to the emptiness trapped in these bones. My son was 15 the first time that I met him. He saw a stranger, not a father, a victim, not a leader. He saw emptiness at the back of my eyes where parents hold love. Maybe this is why I travel back here. When the pillow holds my head at midnight or noon, when traffic makes me pause without distraction, when his mother holds me like she held on to hope. Nervous, in closed spaces like the one that they put me in, in open spaces like the one that they snatched me from, scared to be happy. There are people whose bodies, hearts still beating, still pace those ribcage rooms. If you torture a person for a day, you'll ruin their year. If you torture a person for a year, you will equip them with the tools to torture themselves forever. They will show no more mercy than you taught them. In my home, they sit around my flesh, talking of freedom. I stare at frameless walls, knowing that I will never have it. Thank you. It's rather hard to know where to begin, isn't it? But I'll begin by saying something before I forget to you lot, which is I really would appreciate it if you would uh, write a few paragraphs to go with your poems, um, some of you already have, because I'll send them in to the prisoners. And I can't tell you what it means to those guys to have something like this. I'll tell you a few other stories in a minute, but um, we can't, will you just promise yeah. to do that? I, I've got them, I think I've got them on camera, promising it's really good. Um, <laughs> I just want to tell you a little bit about reprieve and then about all of this stuff. And, and I do invite you to do what I'd invite everyone at these things to do, which is to hackle, to interrupt, to do whatever you like. I don't care. Um, it's, it's really good to have a conversation. And I shall obviously pick on some of you. Not you, because you know too much. I'll pick on someone who knows nothing, obviously. Um, my mum taught me when I was a young and extraordinarily privileged person over in Newmarket um, that it's our job to look around the world for people who are being hated 
and stand between them and the people doing the hatred because that's just never right. And, uh, and I'm really proud of my mum. Okay, she's voted conservative since 1640. Um, <laughs> but, and she reads the Telegraph and I once got her to swap papers for a couple of days. But, um, but you know, she, when I was telling her about my latest obsession, which is Guantanamo on the Euphrates in Syria, which we can talk about, my mum's response was what we would all hope everyone has, which is, well, I've got a big house. Why don't you send a Syrian family to come and live with me? And I'm so proud of my mother because that's the sort of thing that we ought to be doing. And she inspired me to go, or rather she told me, to go and um, help people who are much less privileged. And again, that's our duty, it seems to me, everywhere. And, and you know, one of the things, uh, I was involved in death penalty trials by and large for about 25 years in the US. And then um, they opened up Guantanamo. And it's a little known fact, as so much about Guantanamo is little known, that everyone, all 780 prisoners in Guantanamo, faced the death penalty, only they weren't to have little things like lawyers. Um, they weren't to have anybody, and that was why I brought the first litigation against them, because that was just one of those so many decisions that politicians have made that just make the world a worse place. And the very idea that in order to protect democracy and the rule of law, the first thing we do is put people in a prison in Cuba and deny them any human rights, just so fundamentally stupid. And, uh, and also, um, they do it all so secretly and so that you're not meant to know the facts and, you know, they tell you this is protecting you from terrorism and people just have no idea. And Donald Rumsfeld said, I remember, that these are the worst of the worst terrorists in the world. And I will say, when we, we sued them on the 19th of February 2002 and, God, I got some death threats that day. It was really quite entertaining. I was very foolish. I did it with two friends. I don't have a television. I didn't know about Fox TV because I'd never watched it. So they send me on to talk on that. And I got accused, you know, I am American. I got accused of being a traitor uh, 13 times in a five-minute interview. And it's just remarkable. And, um, and that was this sort of astounding hatred. And yet, even I believed that surely the government couldn't be lying too much when they said that all of these people were caught on the battlefield of, um, of Afghanistan. And yeah, they're going to make mistakes, and everyone has a right to a fair trial. But I figured that when we finally got in there, I'd have some explaining to do on behalf of some of these folks. So it took us two and a half years, but we did get in there. And I want to tell you a few stories about some of the people these guys mentioned that just came up as they were talking, because it illustrates the point. So far, we have exonerated, as I think I mentioned, 95.5% of the people who are in Guantanamo, 745 out of 780. Now, that's extraordinary even for we as Americans to screw up quite that badly, right? And it was, you know, I just would never have believed that when I first went down there. And yet there's a reason for it. And that reason is illustrated fantastically well by one person mentioned, Mohammed al-Gharani, who has this lovely little comic book done about him. Um, and I'll tell you Mohammed's story. So first he's sold for a bounty. If you ever read a book called In the Line of Fire by President Musharraf, and I strongly urge you not to, because it's incredibly tedious, but on page 234 he boasts that more than half of the prisoners in Guantanamo are there, were there, because the Pakistani government sold them for bounties to the Americans uh, to make a little cash on the side. And so they were dropping leaflets, and I have copies of these leaflets 
where it shows a bearded guy who looks Muslim here and then a dollar sign here and then a bearded guy behind bars. And they were giving $5,000 minimum for any bearded guy who, who got uh, passed over. And that in, in Ledbury would translate to about a quarter of a million dollars, right? So look to the person on your right, everyone. And you, you have to do this. If you, except for you on there, you have to look to the person on your left. Um, now put your hand up if I promise to give you a quarter of a million dollars, and all you've got to do is say that this lady here was in Tora Bora in October 2001. <laughs> Will you do it? Will you do it for 50 bucks, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is what was going on, right? And so um, Mohammed al-Gharani was 14 when he left Saudi Arabia. The Saudis, we do a lot, a bunch of death penalty work in Saudi Arabia, and frankly, they look, make Mississippi look good when it comes to racism. And so Mohammed was a black kid from Chad, never been to Chad, grew up in Saudi, wasn't allowed to go to secondary school. And so he's a really smart kid. I love Mohammed. Um, and so he decided that he was going to fly to Pakistan and learn English and learn computers, which he duly did. You know, he was 14, but he saved up the money and flew to Pakistan all by himself. And within a few, you know, about three weeks of getting there, 9-11 happened. He didn't know any of this stuff. And then he gets sold to the Americans for a bounty, and they say he is an evil terrorist. And so he's then interrogated. This, I just love this because it illustrates everything I deal with in Guantanamo. This is now unclassified, I can tell you. If it wasn't unclassified, I'd have to kill you. But, um, <laughs> but we got this unclassified in the end. But I've known it for years. And it's just so frustrating to know this stuff and not be able to tell you. And so he was interrogated by the Americans. And of course, they don't speak Arabic. So they got a translator. The CIA got a translator who spoke Yemeni Arabic. And um, Mohammed speaks Saudi Arabic. And the word zalat in Yemeni Arabic means money. Unfortunately, in Saudi Arabic, it means tomatoes or salad. And so these Americans start interrogating this little 14-year-old, when you went from Saudi to Pakistan, what zalat did you have with you? And they're talking about money. He thinks they're talking about salad. And he thinks they're weird. And he said, oh, well, I didn't have any zalat when I went to uh, Pakistan. And the Americans said, you have to have zalat. And he says, no, no, no. No, I could get zalat anywhere I needed it in Pakistan. So pretend you're a CIA agent, right? What does that make you think? Oh, he's a huge boss. He's an Al-Qaeda financier if he can get Zalat wherever he wants. So they interrogated him about where in Karachi he could get Zalat. And he thinks this is kind of weird, but he lists a bunch of vegetable stalls and describes them. <laughs> he, he, he describes this in some considerable detail. And um, you know, he goes back to that cage they're holding him in that night. And he said, I just talked to these Americans. They're very strange. They wanted to know where to get Zalat in, uh, in Pakistan. And there was an old Yemeni guy who said, I think you had a misunderstanding. And so he goes back the next time he's being interrogated and says, I think we had a misunderstanding. They don't believe him. They, they send him to Guantanamo Bay, where he sent, spent years and where I met him. And oh, my goodness. You know, this is a sort of, like, the legal term for it is total bullshit that, um, that they do. And I'll go through a bit more. I, what I want to talk about is you know, these guys know I'm exploiting them, and I plan to exploit them a lot more if given a possible opportunity. Um, because what we need to do, you know, a lot of people have forgotten about Guantanamo totally. These are the people in the UBS, obviously, and I love that phrase, and it's so much what it's about. Someone said to me when we first started suing Guantanamo that our job is to open it up, 
and then they'll close it down because they'll discover what total nonsense it is. And, you know, we were well on the way to doing that before the lunatic who's in the White House got there. And um, so now it's a real challenge, and now we need help from everybody to keep people thinking and doing stuff about these folk. And there are so many different ways of doing it, and it's kind of fun. And so I'll just tell you a few stories. You know, we have poets, and we'll do the, we get the poetry, you all come. You're now not allowed to leave until you sign in blood that you're going to do something for these guys. I'm sorry about that, but I learned a lot about torture in the last few years, so uh, you're going to have to do it. Um, that's one thing, but there are so many others. So I'm going back to Dorset, deepest Dorset, tonight, and we have an art show coming up. Uh, in Lyme Regis. And, and the reason for that is this, and I think it's a rather nice story. And uh, it, it all stems from Ahmed Rabani, who's another chap these guys mentioned. And I'll tell you Ahmed's story. Ahmed is the biggest, baddest terrorist in the world, obviously. Uh, he's a taxi driver from Karachi. And when I first met Ahmed in 2005, he told me his whole story. He said, I was sold to the Americans for a bounty of $5,000. And um, they told me that I was Hassan Gul, who was a big bad terrorist. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm Ahmed Rubani. I'm a taxi driver. And they said, we don't believe you. And so they then took him to the dark prison in Kabul, where they tortured him for 544 days and nights, right? And, you know, this is a taxi driver, for Christ's sake. And he's, you know, I, I don't mean to be heightist, although I am. Um, and he's like five foot two and 90 pounds, and he's a taxi driver. So they tortured him in most horrible ways. And, you know, you have the word oubliette. One of my little hobbies is to take what we as Americans call enhanced interrogation techniques, it's not torture, uh, and determine what the Spanish Inquisition called it, because I think that's rather fun. Um, and I've had a whole project on that. And, you know, waterboarding, for example. Our dear president says that's not torture, it's enhanced inter interrogation. The Spanish Inquisition were a little more honest. They called it tortura del agua, uh, water torture. But interestingly enough, the Nazis called it the shaft of venom, which I'm told means enhanced interrogation techniques, which just sort of tells you something about what we're doing. My fa one of my favorites is strapado. Now, I don't know how you feel. How do you feel? If I, come on, stand up, and I, I tie your hands here, right, put both hands up, on your tiptoes, on your tiptoes, on your tiptoes, come on, I'm not, not there, on your tiptoes. Now, you're there for the next few days. How do you, how do you feel that's going to be? I'm not feeling too good. Already? It's only been two minutes. Yeah. So gradually your shoulders are dislocating. and Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily know how bad that is until you learn the Spanish Inquisition called that strapado and it gradually dislocates your shoulders. And I was really quite proud. I know pride is a deadly sin, but I finally got the New York Times to start calling it strapado, and it sounds so much better when you use the Spanish Inquisition word for it. So at any rate, poor old um, Ahmed was going through all of this, and you know, he hung, he, he described to me how he was hung up like that for weeks in total torture. And it wasn't until I got him some art supplies and I got him to draw it that you really got to see. He's a good artist. Him and Khaled Kasim are two really good artists. And I'll get to what we're doing in a minute. I just want to tell you the rest of his torture story. So anyway, he tells me this whole story. And I found him pretty credible. And I got, finally got it all through the senses so we could tell the world about it. And um, so then the Senate wrote their torture report. And in it, he is listed as one of the 119 people they admit 
to talk to not torturing, but applying enhanced interrogation techniques. And he's in the appendix at the back, and there's a little asterisk next to him that says they weren't authorized to do it to him. Now, which is worse? Is it worse that they did it being authorized or unauthorized? That's something I've struggled with, and I'm not quite sure. And all of the facts he told me turned out to be true with one little addition, which was it turns out that he had been denying he was Hassan Gul. The CIA says, well, he says he's not Hassan Gul, but we'd better check it out. We're going to take him to Afghanistan and torture him a bit. And not quite what they said. But then what's in the Senate report is when he's in the dark prison, who should show up there but Hassan Gul? And it turns out Hassan Gul had been captured, and he was in the dark prison, unlike Ahmed, who was there for 544 days. He was there for two days because he was cooperating. In other words, he was saying, I'm Hassan Gul, whereas Ahmad was saying, I'm not Hassan Gul, because he wasn't. So they set Hassan Gul free, sent him back to Pakistan. He went back to his wicked ways and ended up being killed in a drone strike in 2012. Ahmed, on the other hand, got sent to Guantanamo. He had a son who was three months old when he was detained, when he was kidnapped. Let's not say he was arrested. Um, and he hasn't seen that son. His son is just now graduating high school, and he hasn't seen him in 17 years. And he's there because he's such a profound embarrassment to us as Americans. Um, and, and anyway, so I got him his art supplies, and he drew this amazing picture of him being tortured like that. And I got a lot of his pictures out, but not the torture ones. I knew they wouldn't let the torture ones out. Everything's censored in Guantanamo, right? Every word my clients say to me is censored, unless I can get it through the censors. Um, they are, and I hope this is being recorded, I think, so let me say quite openly, they're some of the stupidest people on the planet. I'm sorry about that, but it's true. The, uh, so, you know, they wouldn't let these pictures out, but I knew that if I wrote out a really de detailed description of his torture, I could get that out of his pictures. So I did a really detailed description of all his pictures, and then we got him out, and then we gave him to artists, so the artists could recreate the pictures that, um, that he had done and Khaled Kasim had done. And we're going to have a show in Lyme Regis this, on the 15th through the 25th of these pictures. And until you see those pictures, you really have no idea of the sort of things that these guys were through. So that's how we exploit artists. I'll tell you how we exploit authors. Who here fancies himself as an author? I do. It's, there's my book at the back, which total drivel, of course, but it's uh, about Guantanamo. Um, that one. So books, you know, again, our challenge is to come up with ways to get people interested and excited about the plight of people in Guantanamo by just coming up with different things to do. And that's why we're trying to... I'm going to go around you in a minute. You're going to have to admit what your talent is and how I can exploit you. So don't just relax. With, with books, I had this... It was so much fun. I used to take books in there and see what they would censor. And, you know, you just had no idea what these people would censor. Obviously, they censored The Innocent Man by John Grisham because it had the word innocent in there. And I got John to write an op-ed in the New York Times about how silly that was. And then they censored, obviously, uh, Jack and the Beanstalk because the bean might help them escape from Guantanamo. <laughs> I mean, it was just unbelievable stuff. And the book they didn't censor. I was talking to Shakarama. You may remember Shaka. He was one of my British clients. I love Shaka. And... They didn't censor 1984. <laughs> and uh, Shaka and I were sitting there. It was his favorite book other than the Quran. 
And he said, why don't these people censor it? I mean, do they not understand? And I said, Jack, of course they don't understand. They think it's a date and it's history to them. It's all of 20 years ago. Um, so I said, Jack, you've got to write an essay explaining it for me. So he wrote an essay explaining the torturers for the torture and so on and so forth. And I got that through the censors, and then we published it in the Orwell magazine, and then we sent a copy to the censors, and then they censored it. <laughs> then they finally banned the book. And we had this lovely thing, which is book ban I've got a little stickers that we stuck on all the books that were banned in Guantanamo Bay, and we had a whole thing in bookshops about it, which was great fun. By the way, I want, and there was another one. I really want this book done. You know how when you look at, um, at um, the top 10 books each week in the paper, there are five diet books and five food books, and no one else gets in the top ten, right? I say bitterly, because none of my books ever would. The, um, so I had this brilliant idea, which is that we could do a diet cookbook for Guantanamo Bay. And it would involve what these guys have written a little bit about, which is the hunger strikes. Because you remember hunger strikes is sort of traditional thing that people do as a peaceful uh, protest. And, you know, back in the days of, of Northern Ireland and Bobby Sands, we recognized that if someone knowingly goes on a hunger strike, you're not allowed to force feed them. That's illegal. But the law doesn't apply in Guantanamo. So um, when they go on a hunger strike, they get force fed in a most grotesque way. Ahmed Rabani has been on hunger strike for six years now. And he was 90 pounds to begin with. And uh, they force feed him twice a day. And they do it in an unbelievably painful way. And so um, we got most deaf, the rat star, to agree to be force fed on camera. And I got to do it. Poor guy. I was weeping like a child. I mean, you know, it was really good of him. It was very, really painful. But we made him go through it. And then 10 million people watched that. And 10 million people got to see that we, as Americans, are still torturing people in Guantanamo to this day in ways that are just grotesque. And I think one of you should write the cookbook for Guantanamo. And the diet book's quite short. You just stop eating. But you have to, I've done it. It's really, what's the longest you've ever not eaten for? 25 minutes. 25 minutes? <laughs> Get this man a Snickers bar. I mean, he's been up here for almost an hour. Oh, God, we're about to be out of time. I really wanted to have time to talk. But then there's a whole bunch of other stuff. I got some music coming out, too. And we did torture by music. You know how they used music to torture people? The, the number one American torture song was Barney the Purple Dinosaur. I love you. You love me. We're a happy family. So I contacted the guy who wrote that because I thought we should sue for, uh, for copyright. You know, they have to pay for every time they played that song, torturing people. And he was really up for it, because he's a really nice guy, but his agent wouldn't let him do it. There's so many of these things that we can do, and the only question for you is, what are you going to do to help so that these folk are not in an oubliette? And I'm afraid, you know, I really plan to cross-examine you for quite a while on that, but I think I'm about to have something thrown at me, am I not? <laughs> but we can... Oh, right, he's throwing a microphone at me. That's dangerous. I'll just carry on talking then. That's no good at all, is it? What a very bad idea. Um, I'm sorry. I really wanted to get you guys talking. It's far too short a time. Um, but maybe we can talk afterwards um, because I'll be around for a few minutes before. I have to go and watch my wife running in a 10K. She's mad. But she told me I had to go and support her. Oh, totally insane. I mean, I, I think by supporting her, what she means is I get her committed into a serious mental hospital where you don't do that. It's just really bad for your health. Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for all the stuff you did.